Thank you, Brian, for doing a great job leading us in our singing and that wonderful song selection. And thank you to Brother Chad for wonderful remarks at the table and for all of you who are here this morning. So good to see all of you. Please get your Bibles out. Make your way to the New Testament. We're going to be studying from the New Testament this morning. I invite you to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Will you go in your Bible, please? The 1 Timothy chapter 3. As you turn there, I want to say something to the Monta Vista Church family. If you are part of the Monta Vista Church family, I want to begin by saying to you that one of the most important things that we will ever do as a church is what we're doing right now. It is what we're doing right now. What are we doing right now? Well, right now, we're in the process of appointing more leaders. We're in the process of appointing additional men to be elders that are also called in the Bible bishops or overseers or pastors or shepherds. You see, the process of appointing men to be elders or pastors or shepherds should be an exciting time. It should be a time of great joy and optimism and peace and zeal. It should be a time when every member of a local church is focused on doing the will of God. But unfortunately, in some places, in some churches, it's not that way at all. You see, unfortunately, in some places, in some churches, appointing elders is not a time of excitement. And a time of joy and, and optimism and focus on doing the will of God. Instead, it's a time of great danger. It's a dangerous time. It's a time when factions can form. And gossip can take place. And people can get their feelings hurt and become jealous and envious and fall into the trap of making the entire process a popularity contest. I've seen that happen in many places. And you know why that happens? You know why that happens in so many places and so many churches? It happens because people, Christians, members of the Lord's body, stop committing themselves to doing things God's way. They stop committing themselves to just, to just staying within the word of God. They stop committing themselves to just sticking with what the Holy Spirit has revealed in the scriptures. You see, instead of just sticking with what the Holy Spirit says in the scriptures, what many people want to do during a process like this is they want to start binding opinions. They want to start binding personal opinions. They want to start seeking to appoint men who will meet their own personal qualifications and their own personal standard. Now, their own personal standard might be they just like a guy. They just think a guy is charismatic and, and he's personable and, and maybe he's their friend. Some people want to appoint a guy because they say, well, he first served as a deacon. We appointed him to be a deacon five or 10 or 15 years ago and he really did a good job. And so you know what that means? That means he needs a, he needs a promotion. He, he needs to move up through the ranks. He, he, he needs to, you know, move up and, and be a shepherd since he did a good job as a deacon. Well, that means he's qualified now to serve as a shepherd of God's people. Believe it or not, that is exactly how a lot of Christians think. And then for some others, their standard might be that a guy's got to be a certain age. That they come up in their own mind. 
And he's got to have been married for 20 or 25 years. And he's got to have at least two kids who are Christians. And those Christians got to be grown. They got to have been left the house. You see, so often in local churches, members want to bind their personal opinions during the appointment process. And they get angry when those opinions are not treated as though they came from God himself. And I want to suggest that is a horrible mistake for us to make because in the Bible, in the word of God, God tells us exactly what kind of qualities we should look for in shepherds. And that's why we're in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Who cares what our opinions are about the matter? The only thing that matters is what God says. Would you agree with that? Well, I guess nobody agrees with that. I'll say it again. Who cares what our personal opinion is? The only thing that matters is what God says. Would you agree with that? Amen. I care what God says. And so what does God say in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and verse 1? What the Bible says is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer. It's a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from a love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he know how to take care of the church of God? And I knew convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside of the church so that he will not fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. Now, I want to put that what you find in Titus. We go in your Bible to Titus chapter one. As you turn to Titus chapter one, let me just say this. That what you just read in 1 Timothy 3 is everything Timothy needed to help the church in Ephesus. That's the church he's working with at the time. That's everything he needed to help that church get more elders. Notice how Paul doesn't tell him, hey, I got a letter going to Titus and wait till you get that letter too so you can have them both together. He doesn't say that. Everything Timothy needs to appoint elders in Ephesus is there in 1 Timothy 3. And everything Titus needs to appoint elders where he's at is there in Titus chapter 1. These are the same list. They word it differently in some parts, but it's the same thing. And Timothy had everything he needed, and Titus had everything he needed. Keep that in mind when trying to understand what certain things mean in these qualifications. And so in Titus chapter 1 and verse 5, he says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains. Some translations say set in order what is lacking. A church without elders or shepherds or pastors is lacking. It's lacking. It is not everything God wants it to be. It is lacking something critical. Critical, it needs to be a healthy church. There's no doubt about that. And Paul says, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, the proper translation there is having faithful children. This is an unfortunate translation. It's faithful. And that lines up more with what Timothy is saying. What's said in Timothy? Not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. Not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, no, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he'll be able both to exhort and sound doctrine to refute those who contradict. So what do we find there in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus chapter 1? What we find in both of those places is we find what we commonly call 
the list. We call this the list. We call this the list of qualifications or qualities that a man must have to be a shepherd, elder, bishop, pastor in the church. And the question is, what are we to do with that? What are we to do with this, these lists? Well, let's just be honest about something this morning. Let's just honestly admit that so often what we do today as the people of God is we read these two lists in 2 Timothy or in 1 Timothy and Titus, and then we combine them together and we start checking the boxes. We love to check boxes, don't we? Oh, we love to check boxes. In fact, when it comes to this, we really only want to check two boxes, and that's the family boxes. That's all we care about. We say that if a man's got a Christian wife and a couple of Christian kids, oh, man, he's ready to be an elder now. He's ready to be a shepherd. He's ready to lead God's people. Who cares about the other 27 or 28 things God has to say? Nobody cares about that. Who cares if he's able to teach? Who cares if he has control over his temper? And if he's gentle? And if he has good judgment? Who cares if he's a godly husband? And if he has a godly wife? And if he even had anything to do with his children being servants of God? Nobody cares. All we care about is we can check the boxes. Does he have a wife? And does he have a couple of Christian kids? So often people in local churches today put far more weight on the family qualifications than they do anything else God has to say. And I want to be clear and emphatic when I say that is wrong. That is wrong. That is what you call unscriptural. That comes from an imbalanced view of the qualifications. You see, while a man's ability to lead his family does play a critical role in determining his ability to lead God's family, I hope you notice from these verses, God has a lot more to say than that. God has a lot more he wants to consider when it comes to this. There is so much more to a man being qualified to be a shepherd than him having a Christian wife and a couple of Christian kids. In fact, I submit that instead of viewing these qualifications of a shepherd from the standpoint of being a checklist, what we need to do is stand back and view them as a portrait. They're not a checklist. They're a portrait. They're a spiritual portrait. They are a spiritual portrait of what God says a shepherd should look like. You see, according to God, when it comes to leaders or elders or bishops or shepherds in the church, God wants men appointed who first desire the work. Gotta desire the work. Isn't that what Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3 verse 1 again? Again, 1 Timothy 3 verse 1, it is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of an overseer or a bishop, it's a fine work he desires to do. And then you remember what Michael read for us this morning over in Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5? Look at verse 2. You know, Peter was a shepherd in the church. He was a preacher and a shepherd. He wore both hats. And this is what he has to say to fellow shepherds like himself. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 2, Peter says to the shepherds, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, not for money, but with eagerness. Notice how when it comes to a man being an overseer, or a shepherd or an elder in the church, the Bible says he must desire that work. 
He must desire that office. He must desire to be an overseer or an elder and a bishop in the church. He must desire that not because he wants to be a church boss. Not because he wants a position, not because he wants to be able to attend now all the elders meetings and I can get in on the scoop and sit at the boardroom table and have a say so in the direction I think the church has to go. Not because he feels entitled to the office. Or because he thinks being an elder is going to stroke his ego and make him feel important and put him in a place of honor. Don't misunderstand while a shepherd certainly does make decisions. And while he certainly does lead God's people and while he certainly does have some authority that comes from God, the reason why a man should desire this office is because he wants to serve. He wants to serve. He wants to be a servant leader. He wants a work. He wants to do all of the work that is involved with being a shepherd or an overseer or a protector and feeder and leader of God's people. That's why a man should want to be a shepherd or an elder. And we need to remember that. We need to remember that as we, as we go through this process. As we evaluate the four godly men who desire to be leaders in this church, we need to remember that they are not desiring to win an election. They're not desiring to win a popularity contest. They're not desiring to become church bosses or church CEOs. Instead, they are desiring a work. They're desiring a work of service. They are desiring a work of service in the kingdom of God that involves leading and feeding and protecting and watching over souls. That's what the scripture says. Scripture says God wants men to be shepherds who desire that work. But not only must they desire that work, God also wants these men to be men of character. Men of godly character. Godly character involves being above reproach. Remember that in the text. What does that mean? What does it mean when it says that an elder or a shepherd or a bishop must be above reproach? Well, before I tell you what it means, let me first tell you what it doesn't mean. Let me first suggest that the language blameless or above reproach doesn't mean that a man who's going to be a shepherd has to be perfect. He doesn't have to be perfect. He doesn't have to be sinless or flawless. If that was the case, you would never have elders in any church. You wouldn't have had any elders in the church in the first century. Peter couldn't have been an elder because the last time I checked, he denied the Lord three times and cussed about it on the same night. Peter couldn't have been an elder, if that's what that means. You couldn't have any elders today in any churches. You know why? Because nobody's perfect. No leader is perfect outside of Jesus Christ. No preacher is perfect. No deacon is perfect. No Christian man or woman in this place or in any place is perfect. Being above reproach doesn't mean that a man has to be perfect in order to serve as a shepherd. Instead, what it means is he's got to be godly. He's got to be a godly man. He's got to be a righteous man who really loves the Lord. He's got to be the kind of man that no evil charge made against him can be sustained. He's got to be a man of influence. 
He's got to be a man who's really trying to live for the Lord. And when he messes up and we all mess up from time to time, he's willing to repent and get it right with God. That's what it means when it says he's got to be above reproach. But not only must he be above reproach, he's got to be temperate. The idea of being temperate means that a shepherd's got to be a man. He's got to be a man of self-control. He's got to be a disciplined man. He's got to be a man who knows how to rein himself in. He knows how to rein in his passions. He knows how to rein in his emotions. He knows how to rein in his temper. In fact, Titus is told in Titus 1 and verse 7 that a shepherd can't be quick-tempered. He can't be quick-tempered. He can't be the man, kind of man who's always ready to come to blows. He can't be the kind of man who has a short fuse and easily can lose his cool. He can't be the kind of man who will, who will easily blow up situations and make bad things worse. He can't be the kind of man who will easily go into a rage. And he's violent. And he's quarrelsome. And you gotta kind of always, you gotta kind of always worry about what he's gonna do if he gets in the middle of delicate situations. A shepherd can't be like that. He's gotta be temperate. Gotta have self-control. Gotta be a man who's not quick-tempered, and he's gotta be sober-minded. The idea of sober-minded means that a shepherd's gotta be calm. He's gotta be level-headed. He's gotta have good judgment. He's got to be alert. He's got to be watchful. He's got to be careful in all kinds of situations. He's got to be a sober-minded man. He's got to be a man of good behavior. He's got to be a man who can be an example to the flock. He is someone who is worthy of imitation because he's doing his best to imitate Jesus Christ. And isn't that what Peter told us in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse number 3? Peter says that elders must be an example to the flock. He's got to be a man of good behavior, and he's got to be gentle. Remember seeing that? Being gentle means he's got to be meek. He's got to be mild-mannered. He's got to be patient. He's got to be kind to every member of the flock, no matter if they're rich or poor, black, white, Hispanic, old or young. He's got to be gentle with them all. He's got to be approachable. He's got to be a man who is fair and he is compassionate. He is a gentle man and he is a just man. He's a fair man. He's not a man of partiality. He's not a man of prejudice and favoritism. He's not a man who behind the scenes is gossiping and tearing people down and trying to destroy the influence of various members of the flock. No, he's a just man and he's also a holy man. He's also a man who takes sin seriously, and he does his best to avoid sin. Paul would even put it this way. He's devout. He's a man who does his best to live the kind of sanctified life that God has called him to live. He's not a hypocrite. He doesn't behave one way in this place on Sunday and another way out there in the world. No, he's an authentic, real, genuine, holy, devout disciple. That's what the scripture says. And he's a lover of good. He's a man who loves what's right. He loves righteousness. He loves the truth. And he loves to see people walking in the truth. 
He's a lover of good. And he's also a man who's not given to wine. He doesn't mess with alcohol. And he's not a greedy man. Not a covetous man. Not a man who loves money. And he's prudent. And he's respectable. He respects other people. And he's the kind of man who's maintained a good name, not just with people in the church, but also with people in the world. People in the world respect him. People in the world know that he's not a hypocrite. He has a good name in the church and outside of the church. The people of the world recognize that this is a good man. And Paul says he's not self-willed. He's not self-willed. What that means is a shepherd can't be the kind of guy who's always trying to get his way. He's not selfish. He doesn't get angry when people disagree with him on matters of judgment. He doesn't have pride when he hears other people have better ideas than his. He's not self-willed. He's above reproach. He's temperate. He's a man of self-control, not quick-tempered, sober-minded, good behavior, gentle, just, holy, devout, lover of good, not given to wine, not greedy, prudent, respectable, has a good name in the church and outside of the church. What do we see here when we put all these qualifications together, when we take a step back and just get away from the checklist? What we see here is a shepherd must be a man of godly character. That's what he's got to be. He's got to be a man who's truly committed to the Lord. He's got to be a man of influence. He's got to be a righteous example to the flock. In fact, the truth is, this should describe all of our lives. This should describe Sean Jeffries. This should describe you if you're a Christian. We all should be striving to be like this, and that's why elders must have these things, because they are examples to the flock. That's what we see. A shepherd must be a man of godly character. But he also has to be a teaching man. And so go in your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 3 again. And we'll look at verse number 2 in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And in verse 2, the apostle Paul says, an overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of, of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Some translations say apt to teach. Now look at Titus again, Titus chapter 1 and verse 9. In Titus chapter 1 and verse 9, the apostle Paul says that a shepherd must hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he'll be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Notice how a shepherd has to be a teaching man. What, what the apostle is saying there is for a man to be a shepherd, he's got to be a man of the book. Got to be a man of the book. Got to be a man who loves the book, who knows the book, and who has some skill and experience when it comes to teaching God's book. Why does he got to have skill and experience and know God's book? Well, he's got to have that stuff because he's going to need it. He's going to need that stuff. He's going to need the, the, the ability and the skill and the experience in teaching the word of God in order to protect the flock in order to protect the flock against false teachers and, and shut the mouths of false teachers and, and exalt God's people with sound doctrine. He's got to be a teaching man. 
He's got to be apt to teach. And let me just say this right now. Being apt to teach and being a teaching man doesn't just involve this. Doesn't just involve this. You know, so often we say, well, if a man can teach an auditorium Bible class and preach a couple of sermons, well, he's apt to teach. No, sir, and no, ma'am. No. That is such an immature way of looking at this. It doesn't just mean he can get into the pulpit to preach a lesson once or twice a year or teach the auditorium class or teach the big classroom class or teach a high school class or a junior high class. No, being apt to teach means this man can teach in all kinds of situations. In fact, the truth is much of the teaching that shepherds do is not here. It's not in the auditorium. It's not in one of these classrooms. It's not just being done Sunday and Wednesday, but it's also being done in people's homes. It's being done in his home. It's being done at Starbucks or an IHOP. Being after teach means that a man is skilled and he's capable of teaching God's word to all kinds of people in all kinds of situations. That's what that means. He's a man of the book. He's a teaching man. But he's also a family man. He's the husband of one wife. What does that mean? He's only been married one time. Wrong. It's not what that means. The language there literally means he's a one-woman man. He's a one-woman man. His eyes are locked in on his wife. He's not a flirtatious man. He's not a man trying to get attention from other women in the church. He's not unfaithful and uncommitted to his wife. The flock can clearly see that he is devoted to his wife and his wife alone. That's what that language means. He's the husband of one wife. And he's a father. He's raised some kids, or he's raising some kids. He manages his household well. Paul told Timothy, this is a man who keeps his children under control. The idea there is they're obedient to him. They respect him. They listen to him. They submit to him while under his charge. They honor him. They're faithful to him. They're loyal to him. He manages his household well. And he keeps his children under control and his wife is dignified. 1 Timothy 3 verse 11. She's a part of his work with him. She can either enhance his influence or bring his influence down. And so she must be a woman of God. She can't be a gossip. She can't be a woman who's not disciplined. She has to be a faithful woman of God. She must be that for him and for the Lord. Now, I know that of all the qualifications we talk about today, I've been preaching long enough to figure this out, at least by now. These are typically the most controversial. This is all we care about most of the time. We'll talk about this all day. I'll probably have five people come up to me after service with five questions about this. This is all we care about. In fact, what we like to do so often with this is we want to play the numbers game. You know people like to play the numbers game? Well, if he's got five faithful kids, 
Well, if he's got five kids, then three of them got to be faithful. Or if he's got four kids, then two of them got to be faithful. Or if he's got two kids, then at least one of them got to be faithful. We love to play the numbers game when it comes to this and just add to the word of God instead of just pausing and asking a question. And that question is, why is this even here? Why did God even put that in the Bible? Why does that even matter how a man led his family? I mean, did God put that there so we can play a numbers game and go, if you got five, you got to have three faithful. Or you got four, you got to have two faithful. Is that why God put that there, really? The reason why God put this there is because this is evidence. This is evidence of a man's ability. This is showing us something. This is showing us if he has the ability to lead the family of God. That's why we need to evaluate how a man leads his family. And it goes beyond just seeing how many Christian kids he has. He might not have anything to do with that. I consider myself a Christian man, but my grandfather had nothing to do with it because he wasn't even a Christian. So we got to go beyond the surface. And Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy 3 and verse 5, that if a man can't manage his own household, how can he take care of what? The household of God. That's what we're looking for. We got to see how this man leads his family. That's going to show us if he has the ability to lead God's family. He's got to be a family man. And he's got to be a mature man. He's got to be a spiritually mature man. He can't be a novice. He can't be a new convert. He can't be someone who's only been a Christian for a few short years. He's got to be a spiritually mature followers of Jesus. He's got to be sound in the faith. And someone says, well, I believe that means he's got to be 53 years old. He's got to be 57 years old. One man came up to me many years ago and says, I don't think a man should be an elder unless he's 60. Where is that in the Bible? Where is that in the Bible? Where does the Holy Spirit put a number on the age a man must be before he's considered a shepherd? Now, in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 9. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 9, the Apostle Paul says that when considering widows who want to be fully financially supported by a local church. They got to be at least 60. They got to be at least 60 years old. The Apostle Paul says by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we are given an exact age that a widow must be to be considered for full, to be fully supported by a local church. And here's my question. Why doesn't God do that with men who are going to be shepherds? We got an age for that. Why don't we have an age for this? Did God forget? Did, did, did it slip God's mind? Did God fail to give us his entire will in the scriptures? We know better than that, don't we? We know in the Bible, we have God's fully word and will revealed. God didn't forget to put an age when it comes to this. Instead, God leaves this matter of judgment to a congregation. This is a matter of judgment that God leaves to a congregation. How does the congregation see this man? How does the congregation view this man? Does a congregation view this man as a seasoned, mature disciple? You know, I've, there are some men that I've known who lived to be 60, 70, and 80, and a congregation never sees them that way. 
They never see them as spiritually mature men, even though they're 60, 70 or 80. But I've been in some other places where there are some men who have been in their late 30s and early 40s who have been viewed that way. It's a matter of judgment. And for us to put an age on this, we are adding to the word of God. We're adding to the text. And that's wrong. That's wrong. A man must be a spiritually mature man. And he's got to be a caring man. He's got to care about souls. He's got to care about everybody's souls. He's got to have a shepherd's heart. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 2, he's got to be hospitable. Hospitable. You know, I fear that in our time today, we have a very limited view of what hospitality was compared to the first century Christians. I mean, don't misunderstand, while a shepherd certainly needs to be the kind of man who is willing to open his home to all members of the flock, the language of the text literally says he must be welcoming the strangers. That's what the text literally means there. You see, in the time of the first century, that might involve a shepherd opening his home to Christians who were being persecuted. Christians might be running in danger and in fear of their lives and they go to a shepherd's house and they knock on his door and he tells them without hesitation, come in here with me. You're safe here. I'll take care of you. Because I care about you. I care about your physical safety and your spiritual safety. A shepherd's got to desire the work. Got to be a godly man, a teaching man, a family man, a spiritually mature man, a caring man. When you look at this, you know what we find? You know what we find, my dear friends? We find God's portrait of a shepherd. We find God's picture and vision of what a shepherd is to look like. We find God's qualifications, not our qualifications. We find God's qualifications for a shepherd. And here's the question this morning. Do we care what God says? Do we care what God says? Do we really care what God says? If we really care what God says, you know what we're going to do? We're going to evaluate the four men before us according to God's plan. We're going to evaluate them according to God's standard, not our own standard. We're going to take our personal opinions and preferences out of it. And we're just going to stick with what the Holy Spirit has revealed. We're going to trust the Holy Spirit. We're going to trust God's plan. We're going to trust that God knows what is best for his church. God knows what is best for his people. God has put these qualifications for shepherds in the Bible for a reason. And if we really care what God says, like we claim, we'll just stick with them. We'll just stick with what God has to say. And we'll remember that this is all ultimately about going to heaven. It's not about winning a popularity contest. It's about going to heaven. It's about having qualified men to help us go to heaven, to watch over our souls, to build our faith, to lead us, to feed us, to help us become more like Jesus and, and help us get home to heaven to be with Jesus. That's what this is all about. And so as we do one of the most important things we ever do as a church, may God bless us. May God bless us, please. 
May God bless us to really care what he says. May God bless us to really stick with his way and his plan. May God bless us to put before us his qualifications for shepherds and evaluate these men according to those things. In fact, let's pray about that right now. Will you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we love you, we adore you, we exalt your holy and righteous name. We ask you, Father, with great humility to bless us during this time, to bless us as we consider additional shepherds to follow and trust your word. Bless us to understand that you know what's best for your church, that this is your church, it's not our church, and you know what's best. You put the qualifications here in the Bible for a reason, and we need to just stick with them. And we're thankful that we have men who desire the work that we can consider. And we're thankful for our four current shepherds who do such a wonderful job and who are qualified and who love us and they do a fine job. And we're thankful, Father, for the vision they have and all they do for us every single day. And so please, Father, let your will be done in this, whatever that is, and bless us to accept your will as your humble people and servants. And we ask this in the name of the chief shepherd, Jesus the Christ, and amen. Well, this morning, we've been considering God's plan for appointing leaders. What we need to do right now is consider God's plan of salvation. You know, just like God has a plan for appointing leaders, he also has a plan of salvation. And his plan of salvation includes, if you're not a Christian, believing in Jesus and repenting of your sins and being immersed in the waters of baptism, according to Acts 2 and verse 38. And if you are a Christian and you haven't been following fully the Lord, the plan for you is to repent and submit to the Lord. And so if there's anyone here this morning who needs to obey the chief shepherd's plan of salvation, we're going to invite you to the front right now. We'll help you. Let's stand. Let's sing. <laughs>